presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about giants. Welcome, everybody, to episode 56 of First Years. Today, we're going over chapters 20 and 21 of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. And last we left off, the DA was a complete success, and Harry was banned for life from Quidditch. But Hagrid is finally back at Hogwarts. So, of course, Artria wastes no time in going to see him, and they use the invisibility cloak. And there's a fun detail here that Ron is a little too tall to use it now, which I just think is such a great detail to include because, of course, they're going to be bigger and taller than they were when they were 11. So it's a good indication of time passing and the reality of how big the cloak actually is. They go right down to Hagrid's and they find that he's actually pretty hurt. It says, quote, Hagrid's hair was matted with congealed blood and his left eye had been reduced to a puffy slit amid a mass of purple and black bruises. There were many cuts on his face and hands, some of them still bleeding, unquote. And they, of course, immediately want to know what's going on. But Hagrid brushes them off and tries to change the subject to their summers. But they are not having it. Finally, Hermione brings up the giants and says that they guessed. And apparently, they guessed correctly. And Hagrid tells his story about what he's been up to. He was on a mission to find the giants with Madame Maxime. The giants can be found in the mountains, and they had to take a long route to get there because they're being watched. So it seems like it's not just Harry who doesn't have privacy right now. It's Hagrid and anyone else connected to Dumbledore, which we knew when we heard about Percy earlier in this book. But this confirms that it extends beyond the ministry employees and more to literally anyone that's connected with Dumbledore. And not only that, but Voldemort has sent people out to the giants as well. If you'll remember in book four, Dumbledore starts to lay out plans to fudge as to what he could do, like taking Azkaban away from the Dementors and sending people to meet with the giants. And fudge completely blows him off as crazy. But Dumbledore is right about the giants, at least. We're at a point in this book where since Voldemort is already back in the flesh, now it's less about whether he's coming back or not, and more about who is going to end up on which side. And we find out from Hagrid that the giant species is dying out, not from wizards hunting them, but from being forced off their usual territories and needing to stick together to survive. But they're not really made to be living in big groups. So fights break out and they 
they are killing each other off. So the way to do this is to bring the chief gifts of magic because they like it. They bring everlasting fire first, then a goblin-made battle helmet, and they take it slow and begin to talk to him, and he seems interested in what they had to say. But of course, it doesn't work out as planned. There's a fight, and a new chief takes over. And this one seems to be more friendly with Death Eaters than Hagrid and Maxime. And even though they try to convince some of the other giants, it just doesn't work. So the whole trip was a failure, really. And now all they can do is hope that some will remember Dumbledore's message when the time comes. But there's one big mystery left here. And it's the fact that Madame Maxime already arrived back a while ago. And Hagrid only just got back. But before we're able to get an answer from him, our favorite Hogwarts High Inquisitor shows up. But we're going to pause on that for a moment to do a deep dive on giants. We haven't done a deep dive in a while, and so I'm really excited to do this one. We get super mythological when we look up giants, mainly Greek and Norse mythology. Giants were actually closely aligned with the gods and often were considered equal in power to them, but of a different kind. We see this in Norse mythology especially. In Greek mythology, giants were considered, quote, monstrous, savage creatures often depicted with men's bodies terminating in serpentine legs, unquote. These giants were born from the goddess Gaia, the earth goddess, and the god Uranus, the sky god. And Gaia convinced the giants to go to war with the gods, and they ultimately lost. There are famous giants that were killed by well-known Greek gods, Enceladus, who was killed by Athena and buried under Mount Etna. Polybotus was killed by Poseidon, and Porphyrion was killed by Zeus and Heracles. In Italy, the buried giants were thought to be the reason why volcanoes erupted, which I thought was pretty cool. In Europe, giants were usually depicted as stupid and cruel, and they were usually thought to be cannibals and cyclopses. And when someone defeated them, it was usually via intelligence instead of strength. When we look at Norse mythology, we get into some cool language stuff. So the word for these giants is Jotnar. If you just thought of Loki and Jotunheim, you're on the right track. The singular form is Jotun. And this term is derived from another word that meant devourer. There was also another term, which is thurs, which meant something like powerful or piercer or thorn. When William the Conqueror took control of England, the French language kind of took over, and the word géant was used to refer to the giants of Greek mythology, which we just spoke about. And then the word géant took over for Jotnar, Jotun as well. In Norse mythology, the giants were their own supernatural beings that were around even before the gods were. The creation story in Norse mythology talks about the giant, or devourer, I should say, Ymir. He was slain, and his body is what makes up the cosmos. 
And many of the gods in Norse mythology have these devourers in their family tree. Odin is half devourer, while Thor is three quarters devourer. And it's the god's job to keep them in check so that everything can remain in balance. Kind of like the force in Star Wars. Because the Jotnar were beings of chaos, and they represented the chaotic, destructive side of the order of things. Loki is a descendant of devourers too, and none of his offspring are gods, but they're giants or supernatural beasts. And these giants aren't always big. Sometimes they can be the size of an average person or a god. And in case you were wondering about how the hell Hagrid's mother was a full giant and his father was a human, this is actually a thing in this lore. These devourers slash giants were often married to gods or taken as lovers. Freya's brother, Freyr, was obsessed with a giantess and wanted to marry her. And there are stories of these giants breeding with humans, too. And some giants could change their size at will. In Norse mythology, the gods and the giants were considered opposing forces that needed each other to stay in balance. And a lot of the time we hear about frost giants, but that's not the only kind of giant there was. Other giants of fire or lava also existed. Surt is a giant that is a giant of fire and is supposed to bring destruction when Ragnarok hits. So let's compare this to what we see in the book. They definitely fall more into the European folklore descriptions where the giants are very large, they're cruel, and they fight each other. Do you think there's anything we'll see in the future about giants? Anything more we'll learn about them that maybe fits in with other mythologies? Or do you think this is it? Okay, so back to our tense moment where Umbridge shows up at Hagrid's because she just can't leave anything alone. She literally arrives and takes over the place, which is unbelievably rude since this really is Hagrid's home and not necessarily school property, you know? And she's just coming in, asking questions, opening cabinets. It's outrageous, really. And she's trying to press Hagrid for information on where he's been. And she asks about mountains, as if she knows already. That's not a detail you just throw in there as a lucky guess. My question is, if Umbridge did find out that Hagrid went to see the giants, is that illegal? Or would they pass some new law to make it illegal to get Hagrid into Azkaban again? What do you think? Umbridge finally leaves, and the others warn him that she's going to be inspecting his class and will look for probably any excuse to get rid of him. So they're trying to convince him to do something boring and safe so she won't have any excuse to put him on probation or fire him. And I love this, especially Hermione's determination about it, because this is a different situation. We don't really care about Trelawney being on probation, but Hagrid is a staple of Hogwarts, to the point that not having him in this book so far has been really weird. He's just like the Whomping Willow, a concrete part of the Hogwarts grounds. He was one of our first introductions to the Wizarding World. He's the one who came to rescue Harry and gave him his letter and took him shopping for supplies. 
So to not have him around is very bizarre. And Hagrid's always gotten away with his unusual teaching style. Yes, we've had Hagrid taken away in book two, and he had to face the possibility of losing Buckbeak in book three, but everything did end up working out. And now, with the Ministry making their moves to gain more control over Hogwarts than ever before, the stakes are a lot higher now. And I think Hagrid knows that when it comes to the big stuff, like he just went on this big mission, but this is a little different, at least in his eyes. But we're not in suspense for very long. We go to Hagrid's class, which at first we think is going to be umbrage free, but unfortunately it isn't. And Harry comments on how Hagrid is bruised again. What do you think is going on with him? What is it that he's hiding? In the lesson, we get introduced to Thestrals, and Hagrid says he's probably the only person in Britain who has managed to train them, which is pretty incredible. And this is what Harry saw pulling the carriages when he arrived at school. He's proved right that he isn't going crazy. They're real, and the reason not everyone can see them is they're only seen by people who have seen death. They're considered to be unlucky, according to superstition, but Hagrid says they're actually very useful and clever. But before we can really learn more, Umbridge shows up and completely ruins Hagrid's flow. She's purposefully trying to trip him up, which is unfair. She comes in, creates this chaos, and then leaves as if nothing out of the ordinary has happened. I'm sure we can probably guess how this evaluation is going to go, unfortunately. But let's take a break from hating on Umbridge for a second and do our second dive of the episode, Thestrals. This dive will not be as in-depth as the one on Giants was because there's just not a lot of information about Thestrals. They don't seem to exist in any mythology or folklore, as is, that I could find. So I can't be sure what they were based off of. But what I did find was kind of interesting and kind of gives us a few things to think about. As I was looking through anything I could find about Thestrals or horses that are connected with death, I did find something that connects to the Bible. And it's the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which appears in the Old Testament. And it's four horsemen that are each named as a different punishment from God. And they each come in on a different colored horse, white, red, black, and like a palish green color. And they are pestilence or the Antichrist, war, famine, and death. And funnily enough, death isn't the one that's on the black horse, but famine is. This horseman carries scales, which symbolizes how bread would be weighed out during a famine, and it talks about how the price of food would go up drastically, and the wages for an entire day would only be enough for the bare minimum and nothing more. Death, however, comes in on a pale horse and is usually depicted carrying a scythe. And the color of the horse is meant to represent the pallor of a corpse. So that's interesting, because you would think death would be the one to be on the black horse. And so I looked at the symbolism of horses in general, because I figured I would find something there. But there really wasn't anything about death. Then I remembered that these aren't just any horses. They're winged horses. 
And that brings me to Pegasus, which comes from Greek mythology and was a specific character in that mythology. Although outside of Greek mythology, a lot of people use the term Pegasus to mean any kind of winged horse. And Pegasus represents speed, strength, and artistic impression. And quote, it is a guide for humankind beyond the physical world to the realm where the spirit can soar without limit, unquote. Pegasus is also associated with carrying lightning bolts for Zeus. Pegasus was also born from the neck of Medusa when Perseus slayed her and beheaded her. And when Pegasus died, he became a constellation. What sticks out to me here is the meaning of how the spirit can soar without limit beyond the physical world, because that you sort of associate with spirit and like what happens to somebody after they die, right? When we look into more specific information about Thestrals within the Harry Potter series, like in Fantastic Beasts, we're told that they have wings, a skeletal body with reptilian features, and their wings look very similar to a bat's wings. And they're known as omens of misfortune and aggression by wizards because they can only be seen by those who can see death. And they have a classification of XXXX, so they should only be handled by experienced wizards. It reminds me of how people reacted to the Grim in Book 3. It's this symbol that something bad is coming. And I want to ask you what this says about the creatures and what this says about how the wizarding world thinks about death or handles death. These creatures exist really by people who can only see them if they've seen death. What's the significance of that? What does that say about people who have seen death? Beyond this, we have quite a few things happen in the rest of this chapter. Harry's having a hard time enjoying his time at Hogwarts, both because of being worried about Hagrid and because he can't play Quidditch. So as the holidays approach, Harry really can't wait to get out of there, which is something we don't often find. Harry is usually so psyched to stay at Hogwarts over the holidays, but there are so many new wrenches in the mix that it completely ruins his time there now. The big exception is the DA, which thankfully is carrying him through. At the last DA meeting, we find out that Ginny is replacing Harry as seeker on the team. And they found two other Gryffindors that will replace Fred and George. They spend the meeting reviewing everything. And Harry says that, quote, Neville had improved beyond all recognition, unquote, which is just so heartwarming. He is thriving and fully deserves to be. But the meeting ends in an interesting way. Harry and Cho are the last two people in the room. And Cho begins to cry about what happened last year. She's wondering if Cedric had known about all these things, whether he'd still be alive or not. And it's a tough moment because, of course, Cho needs someone to talk about this with. Harry does too, but he doesn't want to talk about it. And you can tell in how he answers her and that he's really tired of providing these answers. The moment is so not what he wanted it to be, 
but it turns into this moment where they kiss and Cho admits that she likes him and he can't even answer. And Harry even says that he has no idea if he's all right or not. It's, it's quite a lot to take in because this is not a normal moment. It didn't hit all the usual beats we would expect when our main character has their first kiss. It's not romantic. It's kind of awkward. It's bringing up painful memories. It's actually a really interesting way to have Harry have his first kiss. Joe is an emotional roller coaster, according to Hermione, which no one can blame her for. Her boyfriend was murdered months ago, and she doesn't really have a lot of clear answers as to what happened because she wasn't there. And she's stressed by a lot of other factors that are going on in her life and feels guilty about liking someone else since Cedric hasn't been gone that long. She, just like Harry, needs therapy. And I wish Hogwarts had a school counselor that these two could go to because they both need to talk through these things. And this shows us that it's not just Harry who is going through these things. It's others as well who have to deal with the trauma of Cedric being killed. And poor Harry is now feeling the pressure that he's going to have to ask her out since they kissed. And if things couldn't get any worse, Harry has a nightmare when he goes to bed. He's gliding along the floor, down a corridor, and there's a man there and he attacks him. And he's woken up everybody in the dorm and his scar is searing with pain again. Harry knows that the man he's attacked is Arthur Weasley. And he knows that this wasn't just any nightmare. This was something that happened in real life. And it was so intense that Harry is getting sick everywhere and he's trying to explain the urgency, but no one is letting him leave until McGonagall comes. And thankfully, she believes him and she takes him to see Dumbledore. This is a really crazy way to end a chapter. And it's interesting because so far in this book, Harry has avoided talking to Dumbledore at all costs. And now they're going to see him. So how do you think Dumbledore will react to this? How do you think Harry dreamed this? Where do you think Arthur Weasley is? Let us know at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me at firstyearspod on Instagram and Twitter. If you are versed in the Harry Potter universe and don't mind spoilers, you can also follow me at Verita Sarum, V-E-R-I-T-A-S-A-R-A-H-M on Instagram and on TikTok. On TikTok, I make Harry Potter videos as well, but about the whole series and it is full of spoilers. So if you're reading this for the first time, that account is not for you quite yet. For next episode, I need you guys to read chapters 22 and 23, and I will see you guys next time. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. 
Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have, and we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.